Hello, hello, and welcome to Woodworking is Bullshit, a new podcast that is centered around art, creativity, and conversations about design. I'm your host, Paul Jasper. I'm a scientist by day, woodworker by night for the past 15 years, and I'm joined with my two other co-hosts, Eric Curtis, a professional thirst trap and a professional full-time woodworker. He, uh, you might recognize him from his hit show on Netflix. And I'm also joined by our other host, Mary Sai, who is an AI designer by day. Very interesting. We'll definitely hit on her AI background. Former architect and uh, hobbyist contemporary woodworker by night. So the way we're going to run this podcast, this is the first episode, of course. The way we're going to run this podcast is we're just going to get right into it. And we like to start by asking questions. And uh, we think that we have a really interesting question today. So I'm going to pass it to Mary to introduce today's topic. Thanks, Paul. Uh, so to kick it off, I'm going to present a question that's always been really hotly contested, but seems to be at the core of a lot of our discussions. And that is, how do you steal like an artist? Um, this topic was discussed by Austin Cleon, Cleon who, uh, who wrote his book, Steal Like an Artist in 2012. Um, and this is not new in the world of art so what do you guys think on this topic of copying have you had like your work stolen how did you feel um before i hand it off i'll i'll answer so i have had my designs copied and uh kind of shocked me at first mostly the speed of replication to be honest i like i think i posted it on the internet one day and then literally four days later i saw another post i was like wait that's mine um I was a little shocked, I guess, and annoyed, but to be honest, like I kind of got over it and I forgot about it a few days later because mostly the design had been changed in a way that, I mean, it's clearly a direct copy of mine, um, but the design had been changed in terms of proportion that it looked so awkward and like very uncomfortable to look at, to be honest. And that kind of placated my mind a little bit. I was like, okay, it's like not, not very good. Um, and I, it made me feel a little bit more confident in my own skills as, as like a designer, as an artist, um, of like, yeah, I feel really happy with my final result. Um, and overall, like, you know, it's just a hobby for a lot of these people. So it's fine. I might feel differently if they were selling it. Um, I would definitely want credit, but I don't know in the end, like it might not really matter. Um, yeah. So I think that, yeah, you, I know you guys have different perspectives. Well, before I state my perspective, can I ask you um, a really fun thing to do on an audio program right off the jump and describe <laughs> this piece for me? Because I'm curious what aspects of this object were stolen from you and, and what did you see about it? You were like, that's my piece. Yeah, yeah. So I have a table called the inverse table. It's just super simple where it's like one side has this large cutout and the cutout is put out put on the other side to create the table base. Um, and it's a coffee table. So really simple. Um, and the way that I had put it together, like I really worked a lot, like a long time on the proportions of like, does this feel right with the, with the tabletop? Um, and then the, the copied version, they like made it really tall. I think they made it into, um, like a hallway console kind of. So they made it really tall, uh -huh. really skinny. And then the top, they like truncated the tabletop 
to the same length as the table base. And it just look, looked incredibly awkward. Like if you have a tabletop, you usually want it to overhang a little bit. Um, so it just, it just felt wrong. If, if hmm. you can <laughs> kind of understand what I'm visually describing. For sure. I think that's the reason why getting copied doesn't bother me because people often when they copy, or at least in my experience, when they copy, they reinterpret as best they can. Um, but that doesn't often lead to an object that's better than the original, which is why I have no problem copying myself because I'm not as good as the people I copy. So it's a great starting point to do an interesting thing. So Mary, one of the thoughts I had is you said, well, it was super simple and it got copied in four days. So immediately the thought that came to mind is, is being, is making things that are so simple actually a risk? Maybe. Okay. So when I say it's super simple, it is a simple form, but it took me so long to come up with that design. It, it wasn't simple for me. It, I went through so many iterations, so many test prototypes and everything to mm. get to that final version. So maybe that's why I was a little annoyed because like I went through all of this sure. design iteration for you sure. to just then like knock this out really quickly. But I yeah, think that's I the mean, danger, though, in making simple pieces is that they're yeah. easily copied. If they're very complex and they they have a multitude of techniques, each of which has to be individually researched and understood, it's almost uncopyable because it's so complex. True. You know, there's some of the pieces I make and, you know, I like to, you know, I like complexity. Uh, so it's like whether it has hand engraving or pyrography or that with marquetry on top of carving on top of, you know, and it has like three or four or five different elements, all that are extremely difficult to copy in their own right. And then you nest them on top of each other. It makes it actually quite difficult to copy. Yeah. So but, it's, almost but, yeah, like a built in, it's almost like a built in safeguard. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. You've still had people copy is, you. Uh, is it when they were simple? Is it uncopyable no, or is it just not economic to copy it, right? Does exactly. it not make financial sense for you to do the thing? The activation energy for them to copy it would be way more than it was worth. Right. And so I think for simple forms, people see a simple form and they think that's a thing that I can batch out really quickly. I'm going to take that idea and try to make a profit yes. from it. They see Which is a, a handmade object, something that is hand carved something hand cut joint or whatever it is and immediately they're like well that's going to lose money so i'm not going to bother to to replicate it that's Which right tells us where our value is right the value is less on the object and more on the profit and i don't so, mary i want to be clear i don't think i'm saying i'm not saying that about you right that's not that's not the implication i'm trying to make but i think that people do look and, and i think we're all guilty of it to an extent right you see an object, it's a beautiful object, it's a well-proportioned object, something that somebody clearly spent a lot of time and, and expertise developing, and they go, well, I can do that simpler and still make money, so why not? Yeah, that's true. I mean, think of the number of times you've seen something in the, like, yeah, I could do that. Like, every, every woodworker thinks that, I think, when they pass something, like, oh, yeah, I could do that, and then just, like, go ahead and snatch it and, you know, copy and take it. But um, I mean, yeah, I would agree. I think that simpler makes it easier to copy. 
maybe maybe this first episode well, is me realizing I got to go into production then. No, no, no. I, I think look, no contemporary people love contemporary stuff and they love to copy it. Like Ikea type um, design is very elegant and very, you know, clean lines. And I, I feel like that's, that's copied a lot more than much more complex and much more intricate designs just because of the, the ease of it. But anyway, this brings up another question, which is, is it okay to copy? Is there a right and a wrong way to copy? I would like to ask that next. Whether there's a right and a wrong way, I feel like is is a separate question from is it okay to copy? And I think, yeah, it's okay to copy. Like I'm going to come down firmly on the side of the fence. Yes, it's okay to copy me. Copy me. I copy other people <laughs> to pretend like I'm the first person to come up with a pedestal table is the most ridiculously arrogant statement I could possibly make, right? So take the designs that I'm doing and and I think I'm coming up with them in an original way. I'm I'm taking all of the input I'm grabbing uh, from other artists, from other media, and I'm mashing them together in a new way that I think is interesting and engaging, or at least is to me. Take that and rip it off. Like the only way for you to grow as an artist is to copy. I think the the bigger problem that we face in this particular age that we live in is the learning process is public, right? Mm-hmm. We immediately start posting our progress on social media for people to follow along, to join. And there's a lot of value in that. But what that means is early on in your process, the way you learn is to replicate and then you get blamed for copying. Yeah. At a certain point, like you kind of, when you're early on in your journey, like students, I guess, like when you're early on and you're like trying to, you know, drink in all of this creativity and educate yourself on like what is out there. I mean, that's why we, you know, why we study like art history and things like that. There is a certain point in which you kind of not, not flip that switch, but you know, you start producing your own creative pieces and put those out into the world. So you kind of have to realize at what point, do I then want to start putting out something not original? Cause I don't know if originals exists, but something that you uh, spent time and iterated and thought of the design and, you know, like when does that switch happen? I guess like, when do you stop copying and then start thinking like, Oh, maybe I should, you know, start putting my own stuff out in the world. Well, f- I, I remember having that, like for me, it was a switch. It was like a on and off. And that's when I started Copper Pig Woodworking. That was the on off switch from like the old me who used to just, you know, Morris and, you know, uh, mission style furniture and all this, the, the, the styles that we know so well to thinking, what the hell do I want to make that's more uniquely me? What's my artistic voice? And that for me was like a switch. Um, but I don't think that's, always the case for everyone i think it's usually a progression right and the progression goes something like at least for me it goes something like this i want to learn x who does x really well okay and you identify a few people who you like for whatever you want to learn and you start copying them just to get the language just to sort of get some proficiency in the lexicon of whatever it is is it you know whether it's a technique or a style you know, you just sort of copy it, but not for sale. You just sort of copy it to understand it. And then when you have like a reasonable approximation of the thing you liked, you're like, okay, I'm starting to understand what this is about. 
Now, what do I want to do with it? And that's where you move off the copying. So I, I only do the copying as part of the education process to try and understand what the language is of this thing that I like. And then I immediately start to combine it with my other ideas that are more uniquely mine and evolve it away from the copying. But to, I guess, playing devil's advocate a little bit, in design school, we are encouraged to think as far out of the box as possible and don't think about the process of getting there, of like what it takes to, like what skills are involved, et cetera. So a lot of the t- professors are like, just just sketch whatever and think about, you know, like come up with designs that, that are just like so wild and probably not even practical. And then you'll worry about the practical stuff later. So, mm-hmm. you know maybe it depends on your training, I guess. Cause for me that, that is how I originally started. And especially in architecture, like the number of students who produce like the most insane looking buildings that would never like structurally be held up. That's how you develop your creative design vision. And then you start to apply practical and realistic structural things to it. So I'm debating this thing in my head for the moment of like, I I don't know the architecture world, right? That's not a world I'm familiar with. I envy it, frankly. I would love to have been an architect in another life, but I wonder if that approach to teaching design is as much based in teaching you the tools of good design as it is teaching you how to build a reputation because their goal in having you graduate from architecture school is to be a successful architect. And to be a successful architect, you have to build a reputation as a good architect, right? I would imagine. Mm-hmm. This mm-hmm. is I'm, this is all speculation. So is teaching a student early on to don't copy because other people have done it. Start building your reputation already. Be loud, be brash, like figure out how to make people stand in awe of you. Is that also a valuable aspect of that education that is separate from design, but they're, they're somehow commingled? Yeah, that's true. It it could be. Um, I guess, <laughs> to be fair, there's different programs that value different things. So like I went to a program where they they pushed that, you know, like think big, think big and bold and don't care about practical stuff. But then when you actually got into when I got my first job, I was like, how do I do this <laughs> like I had to learn so fast on that job is very much sink or swim because I was like oh I don't actually really know how to detail all of these things that other programs do focus on that don't really focus on the theoretical part as much so yeah it kind of depends uh in a practical setting in like a professional setting it didn't I guess it didn't really help me um yeah, I don't know. Question. Well, I see. I see this as a continuum. You can take small iterative steps and evolve your style forward from copying an original form. Or Mary, you're talking about taking a huge leap down the line, yeah. all in one shot. Yeah. And sometimes you leap so far, it's not even buildable. Yeah, it's often and not. I, <laughs> and I think I've, I think I've tried both of those things. I think I, I do a lot of the iterative single step evolution forward. And I've also tried to just throw caution to the wind and just like, woo. And it I don't I don't often land in a good place when I do that. I usually <laughs> I I usually find myself and like, oh, I don't really like this. Uh, so I tend to oh. do the more iterative. Like just to give you an example, and the iter- I wouldn't poo-poo the iterative approach because for example, uh, you know, one of the world's um, hottest artists right now, Takashi Murakami, right? 
a big part of how he got his start was taking traditional Japanese paintings and reimagining them, which is in essence copying, but infusing it with his own life. So it's like, you know, um, uh, Tempest, you know, uh, Tempest fighting a whirlwind was a, a famous Japanese pattern, uh, J- Japanese painting, and he reimagined it. And the same elements are there, the same guy with the same sword with the same Tempest coming and he's fighting it. But the two are just so radically different. So it was, it was, like, it was a, a copy, but not really like a reimagining of a copy. And I see that as like an iterative kind mm-hmm. of approach as opposed to like, I just imagine something that you've never seen before and just go for it mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> I, I i think i struggle between the two because i really like the idea of you know going big and bold and then figuring out how to get to that i guess um because i think for me personally it pushes me as a designer to because i am someone who is very you know planned and practical to force myself to put to like think outside the box it's just such a big leap that I'm then forced to abandon my very intense planning steps and this can come later once I've like figured out the design but like this is the first part this is the exploratory phase of like what could I possibly make Mm. and then planning happens after that let me ask a related question now how do you borrow inspiration for a piece without it being copying Uh, I don't know if you can. <laughs> uh, really? Well, I think you can. I disagree. I disagree. Yeah. I think there are there are basic building blocks of design that are impossible not to repeat, right? And so, if you see an object and you're inspired by that object to make a thing, and this is often where I come from when I'm searching for ideas, I, I kind of. I have a weird scattershot approach that kind of combines the the two things that you guys are talking about. Like I'll start with a concept and have an idea of like what it is I'm trying to visually express, but I'm not confident enough in my ability to see that object in my own mind to then just draw it out and make the thing. I then seek out visual inspiration until I see a thing that's like, it's almost like a framework for an idea, right? It's, it's a starting point and I'll see that thing and I'll just go, Oh, I'll just make that. And then I start the process of replicating that. But in that process, it inevitably diverges down different pathways. And it, it begins to become this articulation that only I can do because I'm making it mostly by hand, right? And the whole by hand versus by machine CNC, those all of those are different conversations. But there is this ability to be present with the object as it's coming to life that I think for me, in my experience, uh, in my creative practice, allows me to use a thing as a base inspiration and set off to copy that and then just allow that thing to blossom into its own object. But that will inevitably pull basic principles and basic core points from the object. That is, you could say it's copying. Like I'll, if I'm making a cabinet, for example, I'll often pull an idea, look for a cabinet and go, oh, that cabinet has really sexy proportions. I'm just going to use what I think those proportions probably are. And then it ends up being an an entirely different cabinet, just happens to have that same foundational building block of proportions. Or it could be texture, or it could be color. That's Mm -hmm. it, yeah. So I I have bits and pieces 
from other fields of art floating around in my head. I may have seen something in the ceramic field, or I may have seen something by a glass blower, or I may have seen architecture, like a certain shape in architecture. And I think, oh my God, that shape is so beautiful. What if I put that shape, like reimagined it into like a 1700s style cabinet? But it has that shape integrated into the interior somehow. So it's like, it's exactly what you said, Eric. You see an element you like, or you can identify an element you you like, or multiple elements, and then you swirl them together in new combinations with your own uh, design ideas. And it winds up evolving into something totally different. But I could show you on every piece, I could say, I got this piece from this inspiration and this carving came from that idea. Right. And, and you'll see the link came from that idea. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. You, I mean, I'm you, dealing with that right now the with the, I'm dealing with that with the, the table build I'm doing at the current moment. Right. <laughs> it was, I have a slab. I need a dining table. How do I make the base as minimal as possible? And I sought out inspiration until I found a table where I was like, this is perfect. This has already been done. And that was the, the Nakajima, uh, trestle table. And then it was a question of, well, they've already done it. It's already perfect. How the hell am I going to do it any better than that? Right? Mm. So you tinker, you play with things, you take the base and you go, oh, okay, there's a really nice subtle curve under the the foot there. And how can I take that post? That's just so simple and upright. And it's, it's perfectly minimal in its approach to highlighting the beauty of this piece of wood on top. How do I replicate that in a way that's not ceiling, but different. So I split it up into two posts and tried to replicate the the thinking of the context of where this table is going to live. I tried to leave enough negative space in the middle of that post so that you can see through the table because my house is small. I didn't want it to be large and blocky and take up a lot of visual sight lines, right? And so hmm. now all of a sudden, just through a little tiny shift of understanding where this table is going to live, it has shifted from a replication of the Nakashima piece to an iteration of the Nakashima piece. And then by the time I'm done with it, I was looking at it today thinking, all right, I need to add a little curve here. I need to just soften this edge a little bit. And where the Nakashima piece is, I lack the architectural vocabulary. So forgive me, Mary, but like it's, it's, it's not brutalist, but it is, it's, it's <laughs> strong. Some it's visually strong, right? It's robust visually. And, and mine is becoming more, um, delicate in a way just by adding a soft subtle curve or adding an edge profile here and so it's evolving away even more through the process of the piece of the through the process of so making the piece rather so then what do you consider like the line between copying and inspiration and like what what would you have to do to your table to say that it's a copy like exactly replicate nakashima's table base you think like at what point can you modify in which it's inspiration I think it's, 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 it's a great question. I think it is, it's partially intent, which is really hard to measure, right? Because you can, you can have an idea. Well, let's take simultaneous revelation, right? This, this idea of two people coming to the same conclusion at the same time, right? The invention of the light bulb happened multiple times. Just happened to be that Thomas Edison had the, the economic advantage in the business acumen to produce the light bulb for Americans. Um, so he's not only a thirst trap, (laughs) he's not only a thirst trap, he's also really smart, (laughs) but, but there is this thing, right? There's this thing of, I may come up with an idea 
and it's it happened completely organically and it's it's perfect and it's beautiful and then i seek out inspiration on the internet and next thing i know mary has made the same damn piece and we've never talked about it and you just go well how am i supposed to make this piece now that i think is great because people are going to assume that it's a, a rip off of mary's idea so there is a bit well, of the intent there that matters. But again, like how you measure that is now we're just having a conversation about creative honesty. I, I don't know that you measure intent. It's it's very simple. You look at it and if it looks exactly like the other person's, you're like, what a ripoff. It's that simple. Right. So I think yeah, it's just well, a visual. Like, a it's a visual point, cue, right? There, there are artists, though, where you're like, that reminds me uh, or like even songs like that reminds me of that other artist. Is that if that like phrase you know comes into your mind like that reminds me does that mean it's copying is it so so basically you're talking about queen versus vanilla ice <laughs> is that what you <laughs> yes yeah. well all right so let's let's take nakashima as an example of this as well right because anytime you put a live edge slab on anything at all people are going to go oh that's a nakashima ripoff and it's like my man my man didn't invent slabbing trees he just he built enough of a reputation where every time people see that they associate that with him and that's wonderful he oh, built Eric. a great brand this is a great segue into the river table <laughs> no, let's, boy, talk about, let's talk about everyone's favorite form the river table oh man you're really trying to start a fist fight tonight, huh? I just look, I just had to ask it. So we all are familiar with river tables. Uh, I, uh, I, I may, maybe some of our listenership knows about the the kerfuffle that went down with Gregory <laughs> Gregory Classen and his um his trying to copyright the name River Table and and what went down I, with that ignored Did, instantly. <laughs> All right, so uh, I should give a little background, right? Audacious. So, okay, so uh, l- let me let me give some background because I, I shouldn't assume everyone knows this story. So you know, river tables—they've been around for quite some time. Uh, Greg Klassen, who makes very beautiful r- river tables, he actually uh, inlays glass down the center as opposed to epoxy. Thank God uh, that uh, you know they're very beautiful. <laughs> and as a business maneuver, and I think to give um, some. Uh, peace of mind to his customer base. He, I, I believe, if I have my facts straight, that he tried to patent the name River Table or River Collection. And he, he wasn't saying you can't make one. He, I think through his business, uh, his business maneuvering, it was basically you can't call it that. And what happened was once he got that patent uh, uh, approved and then he sent it to eBay and, and Etsy and and a whole bunch of people's shops got shut down immediately because these platforms didn't want to deal with um, copyright issues and all these people got extremely mad right because they they make a living off making river tables I assume and they reacted very poorly to this so while it was it seemed like to me I and maybe I have my facts a little wrong correct me if I if I do but it seemed like an like a t- totally viable business maneuver is what he did but what happened the backlash was a bit unexpected and was everyone was pointing out anathema from the community. Yeah. Yeah. And everyone was like, you didn't make the first river table. There's evidence that the river yep. table existed before you. That's all true. I think that's all been verified. He was not the inventor of the river table, but he was the first one to put a copyright on the name. So that's my understanding of the situation. Now, how do we feel about I, river tables in this? I think your understanding of the situation is, is, 
pretty accurate. Um, the idea that you can copyright a form is wildly irritating to me. And it's the same in music. Like this, this concept that you can have a thing and then you have ownership over that thing, over an idea, right? You're not taking ownership over the object. You're taking ownership over an idea. Is That's narcissism at its highest level. To assume that you're the first person to come up with the concept of, I don't even want to use the river table as a concept for, for this example, because I don't mean, I don't know him personally. I don't mean to, to you know, throw, throw hands over there. But this concept that you can write a pop tune and take intellectual ownership over a baseline as though people haven't been playing that series of notes in Western culture for the last 1500 goddamn years. Get over yourself. The issue is that it is a uh, an economic problem, right? People want to make money. And in order to make money, they have to be known as the person who does X, which is not their fault. That's just the society we live in. And they are doing active harm to the creative community and the woodworking community specifically in this instance by telling other people that they're not allowed to explore that form and drive it farther because you are now stagnating an idea by not allowing other people to explore it. Yes, people will rip you off. That's the nature of being a creative person. I don't know how to like comfort you in your economic loss on that. Like pull your big boy pants up and deal with that fact. That's just life. But don't stagnate the creative, don't stagnate the craft because you want some other person to make a few grand less. That's just, that's, that's selfishness. I don't, there's more important things than you. Get over yourself. That's my, I'm getting off my soapbox now. Do you think that he made it, uh, like, river tables and epoxy tables more popular because of it? Of, like, the controversy? Absolutely. I think he did. It backfired. For sure. For sure. I, yeah, I, I do think- believe he was one of the main sort of provocateurs that brought river tables into the the public lens. Yeah, because I feel like I saw epoxy tables explode in popularity after that. So, and weirdly enough, not like not many people do glass river tables anymore. Yeah. I mean, actually, yeah. one, one of my first pieces was a glass river table uh, and haven't made a river table since. But I, yeah, I remember like just like. I- seeing on like pinterest or like instagram like the number of epoxy tables i was like oh my god what is happening like this is well it's not often that you, like a fad takes over i feel like woodworking and this hey, like yeah hey yeah. eric i thought i thought architects didn't copy wasn't is not what you heard earlier <laughs> in the episode well, architects copy weird lot. how that is happens that, isn't it you know eric I, I heard some bullshit up front I mean, about like architects do they have these huge jumps in their design vision. And then Mary's like, yeah, my first piece is a river table. Just, just okay. tell me that architecture is what? bullshit. I never you know? claimed that architects, <laughs> architecture Holy. is bullshit. That's why I left. But I never claimed that architects don't copy because lots of copying happens. Mm, that's and two, interesting. <laughs> uh, I definitely copy. I will not claim to uh, not copy. So, I, I think the river table is a unique example in this regard, though, because it is a perfect form for people early on in their journey in woodworking to replicate and feel like they made a thing like w- with relative ease. It's not I'm not saying it's easy. I don't mean to belittle it. It still takes 
some technical understanding and you still have to actually do the bloody thing. But it is, it's not like building a tree house, which takes understanding of, you know, structure, architectural design, et cetera, et cetera. It's not like building a, a back deck. It's, it's pouring epoxy in between two slabs and then buying, you know, metal base legs from Amazon and tacking it on and feeling like you did a thing. And that's wonderful for a lot of people as a gateway into furthering their own understanding of the craft. So I, I feel like I, I, to cut Greg class in just a little bit of credit here, it did explode because it is a relatively easy form to replicate. Uh, just, just, I, I have to say this. I hate epoxy river tables. The glass ones I can, I can yeah. kind of do. They have an elegance to them that I like, but the, the epoxy, it just kills me. I hate them. There, I said it. Does it, does anybody like them? I would agree. Yes. Like, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, the last, uh, the last question, uh, well, I, as long as we're, we're agreed on river tables, <laughs> um, I guess the, the, so the last question is, you know, we, and we've touched on this already. Have you been copied and how did it make you feel when you were copied? And was there any upshot? Did that change anything about how you view it? Um, do you have people asking you to copy things via DM? Oh, I have a lot of people who ask me for plans, actually. Um, I was like, no, I definitely don't have time for that. But uh, I, I, I literally never even thought about it until I got those messages. I was like, oh, it's like weird that people would actually like, I guess it was, it's me and my insecurities being like oh people like actually would want to like copy something that i designed and then i felt like flattered i guess um you know imitation or what's the phrase like copying is a form of flattery I don't imitation know. I don't is a serious form of flattery yeah yeah so yeah i i felt fine with it afterwards to be honest but yeah what well, you guys never responded like what what if people copied of yours well for me the, copied... the things that they've caught co- oh, go ahead Karen. yeah go ahead People have copied um, several pieces of mine and I, I, in fairness, openly encourage them to. And I, I find it quite nice when they do, right? Like there's, there's this, I, I attempt to come at it from the point of assuming people are well-intentioned until proven otherwise. And I think oftentimes people will see an object that I've made and they are inspired by it for some reason, Right that for whatever the thing is that speaks to them and they are motivated to replicate that and create that beauty in their own lives. And that's, that's a wonderful place as a former teacher. That's like the perfect place for a human being to be. So when people copy me, it's like to, when I have conversations with them, they, they have, they're beaming with pride about what they've accomplished. And like, to have the arrogance to to shut that down because it looks like the thing that I made is like, I don't, it seems again, as, as somebody who really enjoys teaching and we've all been beginners at some point, if I made a thing that looked like somebody else's and then I shot them a DM, like look at the thing I did. And they were like, what the hell, man? I would have been <laughs> devastated, you know? Hmm. So I, I'm just imagining I, you again, like encouraging copy me, man. <laughs> I'm imagining you encouraging people like, yeah, definitely coffee me. And then once they've made it, be like, what the hell? Why did you do that? <laughs> <laughs> that was like a huge day. <laughs> like, that would be close. very funny, actually. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> like, like, he copied me. 
So I've had a few things copied that were more simple pieces. Uh, at first, I was like irritated, like, come on, really? I mean, it, it seems so lazy. But with time, I sort of came to where you were, Eric, which is like, if this makes you happy, and this is what's accessible to you, and, and maybe you don't have you don't haven't had a lot of time to develop design ideas, you know what, if this makes your life better, you go ahead and copy it. So when I get asked, hey, can I make, would you mind if I use this idea or borrow this? I always say yes, and I, actually it doesn't bother me anymore. But I always say something along the lines of, I can't wait to see how you evolve this into your own language eventually. Like I give them that For little sure. push that I think yeah. they need to kind of like, I, I like copy it and then swirl your own shit into it because actually I would find that really interesting. And some people have made some awesome, awesome additions and uh, iterations to pieces that I originally started. And it's kind of fun. Yeah. It's fun to see where people take your thought and go with it in ways that you wouldn't have done. Yeah. You can say the same for like techniques too. Like Kumiko, I've seen so many people do the same, like, Asanoha pattern, but like the way they apply it is super cool. And yes, yeah, that's, that's one of my favorites. All right. Well, that is a lot about copying and how to steal like an artist. I, I think, you know, we're of the opinion that copying is part of learning. Um, but there are sort of limits on how people react viscerally, how close or how far it is from a visual example and the intent and then I guess I think we also agree that it's pretty awesome to take something and evolve it forward. I think it's it seems like in most cases, if it's not a huge commercial enterprise, uh, but most you know uh, woodworkers that we know, they sort of like seeing that happen. So uh, that seems to be, I think, where we've landed, if I summarize that correctly. Now, we're going to switch gears now. We have a new segment coming because uh, we don't want to be uh, heavy and heady all day. Uh which was we wanted to talk about sort of our, our, you know, our history a little bit, but not in a boring way. So I would ask, what was your first successful piece that you ever made as a woodworker? Was it a copy? <laughs> uh, so uh, Mary, what was your first successful piece? Oh yeah, I know this instantly. Um, the first <laughs> successful piece, well, I'm defining as the first piece I was truly happy with, um, was something. A, it was a table that I made after I visited the Martin House in Buffalo by Frank Lloyd Wright. Um, so he has these stained glass windows called the Tree of Life. And they're like pretty, I think they're pretty famous. So if you just Google like Tree of Life, stained glass windows, et cetera, you'll see that. And then I, I had like, I like instantly knew what I wanted to translate those into. So I have a Frank Lloyd Wright um, Tree of Life inspired table. I have a coffee table and a dining table now um, that is that utilizes like that kind of pattern within the stained glass window. And that was the first time where I was like, I'm really, really happy with what I've produced because it's something taken directly from architecture. That's like my background and something that I love, something that I have always wanted to draw inspiration from, but like had a hard time um, articulating it into a furniture piece. It's always been like architecture to architecture or something like that. Um, so taking something that's large scale into something smaller scale is something that I've tried to do many times and that was the first time that i thought i did it successfully um yeah now do you wish you had drawn the tree of life or that you were like do you as opposed to borrowing that element do as you advance now do you wish like shit i wish i could draw that de novo 
as opposed to borrowing it? Do you ever have that thought or is that just me? Uh, I don't know. Sometimes like I did a lot of iterations on it. It's not an exact like replica of that design. It's a, a simplified um, version of it where I deleted, you know, certain elements, et cetera, and changed angles or whatever. And I, I did a lot of iterations where I was like, maybe I don't need to, you know, copy from this tree of life that the fact that I'm like starting on this design path is good enough. And I did other patterns, but I wanted to put, to pay homage to, you know, something that I really, really fell in love with when I, when I saw it in person. So that's why I decided to stick with it. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. That's a good example. How about you, Eric? What was yeah. the, your first successful piece? So we need to distinguish, are we talking And maybe I have to make this decision. Are we talking about first successful piece as a craftsman or first successful mm. piece as a designer? Oh shit. Did you really have to bring that up? Well, so here's the reason I ask, right? Mary comes at this from a different path than you and mm. I did, right? Mm -hmm. She came mm -hmm. at it from, she learned the, the craft of being a designer before she learned the craft of woodworking. So you have a different approach where I think most people in the woodworking community learn the craft of physically making an object first. And then they go, well, how the hell do I make this interesting? So... That that I should speak from my own experience. That was my experience. I wanted I saw somebody cutting joinery by hand. and I went, holy shit, I want to do that with my life. I don't know how I don't know what that looks like, but that's what I'm going to do. And then it wasn't until later on where I went, oh, I actually have a voice and I want to articulate my thoughts and figure out how to communicate through visual forms. So with that, how long did that take? Place, Eric, how long did that take to that, go from the doer to the, the visioneer? seven, eight years. Yeah, me too. And, it was and about 10 is, years. There was, there are kind of three distinct moments in my woodworking path. The first was when I realized I wanted to be a woodworker. It was a very clear moment in time. Um, and that I think was 2009, I think. Um, and then the second was the first time I ever made a successful piece, which was again, a it's, it's a ripoff and we'll get into that. But uh, that was the very first time where I was like, oh, I'm actually good at this craft. I can, I could maybe do this. Uh, that it wasn't was a river table, was it? <laughs> it wasn't a river table. Uh, and then the third iteration was when I realized I had a voice and I stumbled upon that accidentally, which was in 2017. Um, so the, the first piece that I think was ever a, a success was when I was in school up at CFC doing the nine month program. And our first big piece, the first piece I had to design, the first piece I had ever designed. And I, did, I didn't know how to design anything. I was a clown who grew up on construction sites and <laughs> I decided I want to be a furniture maker. And he was like, you have to design an object. I was like, I just, I can cut dovetails. Can I just do that? Because that's all I got. I'm a one trick pony. Um, and my teacher, Alan Lewis, who God bless the man, has had at the time very different viewpoints on design and build uh than i did at that moment in my career and i think my this is the only time i think he was ever frustrated with me uh was i just got to a point where i was like i can't draw i don't know how to articulate what i'm i'm attempting to say visually like what the hell do i do and he just literally put a book in front of me and i was like that blanket chest is kind of cool he's like just fucking make that then <laughs> and that's what I started out doing. I think that was a really core moment in my design philosophy was, was him just being 
just go make that. And it was a, a blanket chest from uh, Sidney Barnsley around the turn of the 20th century. Um, arts and crafts style, big oak blanket chest. Um, and I, I will say I worked my ass off on that piece. And it is, to say it's a, a ripoff of the Barnsley piece, I don't think would be an overstatement, but it is a taking a piece that was 110 years old and reimagining that for contemporary furniture. So it is in some ways an iteration. But at the end of that piece, um, we were having the crit and Alan just kind of looked over at me and like nodded at me like, all right, all right, you pulled it off. Good job. And I was like, oh, I think I think I did good. <laughs> Validation. <laughs> yeah, is that blanket that just the one I saw on your place? Everywhere. Yeah, yeah, I still have it. Still use yeah, it every day. I remember that. No, it was pretty sweet. I remember that. Yeah, yeah I especially like the uh, big epoxy pour down the middle. <laughs> Thanks, man. Really, I worked hard on that one. <laughs> and now Probably we have to add purple, which I think is very 2012, but it's fine. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, no, melted crayons. I think. <laughs> <laughs> now we have to add clown to the list of Eric's credentials. It's like uh, professional woodworker, uh, uh, Netflix superstar, uh, uh, personal thirst trap, and professional clown. Personal Eric. thirst trap. <laughs> I got a lot right, of irons uh, in the fire, man. <laughs> what even is a personal thirst trap? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's like it's just yours. <laughs> you don't even have to share it. Oh my god. <laughs> oh. oh boy. All right, buddy. Well, what, you know, was yours? what was your first piece? Yeah, well, I almost don't want to do mine now because I just want to keep talking about you being a thirst trap. <laughs> don't worry, we'll have plenty of time for that. Uh, <laughs> you Actually, that brings up that brings up our last segment. But before we go to the last segment about Eric no, being no, a thirst no, trap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My first successful uh, piece, it was, uh, you know, uh, I learned I learned how to do woodworking from a neighbor, an 80 year old uh, uh, gentleman across the street, Hal. And um, he said, uh, we're going to we're going to make something. We're going to make a stool and that'll show you all the different operations and machines. And so that was definitely and we still have that stool to every, you know, in our house. I used it today, as a matter of fact, to hang my porch wing back up. Now that it's getting nicer out, but that stool is a constant reminder of like where I started. And Eric, it was just like you said, it was like just start doing the how of woodworking because woodworking is so difficult and it takes so many years to learn how. So it was just a very simple stool. It was not a ripoff because he drew it out of his own mind on graph paper one day. So I can say it's not a ripoff, but I don't like that's successful from the idea of like execution. But my first piece that I thought was like yes. It came much later. I would say it's in the last few years where it was like all my own design ideas like that have evolved over all this time. Uh, I don't know what the piece is per se. I don't know if it was like the like the coffin jewelry chest or one of these other crazy ideas, but those are way more uniquely mine and they feel more successful to me from a design point of view, not an execution point of view. Anywho. Uh, I think uh, we can end that segment because I I know all three of us just want to get to the last segment. Back to Eric. <laughs> oh, so Jesus. we just des- we decided that because Eric's DMs get inundated with requests from young women and men, 
uh, hoping to catch his eye that we would do a, a new segment and we call it the slide where we feature some of Eric's thirsty DMs. He is kind enough to let us read them. And uh, in the after show, if you uh, become a patron of our show, we will discuss these at length. And perhaps Mary and I will offer these uh, young ladies and gentlemen some advice on how to get Eric's uh, attention. This is the best entertainment of my week. This is this is terrible. <laughs> The slide. We're gonna slow things down, draw a bath, pour some wine, light some candles, cause we're sliding into Eric's DMs. Eggplant emoji. Oh my god! You're wheezing over there, Paul. I don't understand what the issue is, buddy. I got my wife to record that. I have never heard that voice out of her ever in my life. She sounds like some sort of vixen. She is a lounge singer in the 40s out here. She is living life. Dude. Oh, my God. Okay, with that, uh, it's time to explore the first DM that Eric has shared from his Thirst Trap collection. Paul's so excited. Hey, Eric. This is a dude, by the way. Excuse me, but you're incredibly beautiful. Oh my god. I saw you on the new Netflix show, and I was like, damn. You could go down on me, that's for sure. I did not just say that. I am so sorry. It it gets rough in there, folks. It gets scary in there sometimes. So thirsty. (laughs) These sound lights are my favorite. <laughs> oh my god. Vicky's a legend. Vicky is a legend. Oh my god. <laughs> I'm sweating from that. <laughs> Mary, I don't can know. you I don't imagine know getting you this in your DM? I don't have to imagine this, to be honest. Can you, can oh, you imagine the audacity <laughs> it takes to send a DM like this? No, no, no. We gotta, we gotta. You wait. can go down on me any day. We gotta discuss this at, in the after show. <laughs> We're gonna discuss this more in the after show. Oh my god! You know, uh, thanks everyone uh, for joining us today on our discussion about stealing like an artist and copying. We hope that you'll uh, become a patron of ours. The information will be in the in, uh, info provided with the podcast. This is our first episode. We're doing this honestly as a passion project among us we these are topics we want to talk about and these are three people that uh, all have mutual respect for each other and come from different angles and we thought if we're going to be talking about all this stuff why don't we just record it and share it and see if other people enjoy hearing about it as well so honestly this is a passion project this wasn't some conceived podcast to try and like you know, increase uh, reach and and you know money and, and and all this. This is honestly our our passion is talking about design and all these topics. So we hope that you'll tune in for our next episodes. We plan on releasing uh, probably every two weeks. We're going to try that, and uh, we'll talk to you in the after show. Peace. Bye.